chance to look at it through other people's eyes. Take some time and reflect on what you believe in your soul. Cause that is the key to life. You gotta let the negativity go. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the What the Fox podcast with your hosts, Lindsay Fox and Amber Ross. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a lovely special guest, Rachel Hickey, uh, meeting with us today to actually talk about eating disorders. And just as a reminder, for the month of May, it is Mental Health Awareness Month. So that is why we are choosing this topic, because um, as you will learn today, eating disorders actually are uh, they profoundly impact our society and actually have a very high, high percentage of um, individuals whenever you look at the full scope of mental health disorders where people do pass away either by suicide or cardiac arrest and and we don't really talk about these things so um rachel welcome we are glad to have you we are glad to have you yes we're glad to have you um and and just to clarify here rachel you not only work in this profession as a licensed mental health counselor, but you also are an adjunct lecturer at a local university in Massachusetts. And um, can you tell us what you teach, by the way? Yes, I teach psychology of women. Wonderful. So what does that comprise of exactly? Because usually when we think about eating disorders, by the way, we, we think about women, yes, right? We do. And that's how we've been socialized for sure. Um, so I have a pretty broad array of topics in my curriculum. Um, so I do feel a little bit bad for my students that I don't spend more time on each one, but I wanna make sure that they have a really large variety of topics to go through. So anything from you know adolescent development, mothering, violence against women, I naturally have a whole unit on eating disorders. Mm, um, good. Work and achievement. So it really kind of runs the gamut of topics. Yeah, so that's that's totally fine, but I think it's a very important topic to cover because frankly, I feel like even as clinicians in graduate school, we really don't learn much about eating disorders. So That's true. I mean, newsflash I mean, to those <laughs> I didn't do graduate school, but like that's something that needs to be like brought into all curriculums at all stages yeah. because it's it's definitely My recollection in grad school is we had I think one unit on eating disorders that they combined with addictive disorder. Exactly, exactly. Wow. And it was just, yeah, they just kind of you, you cram it all in together because to your point, what you're saying is like, you know, you're divvying up your curriculum. So you're touching mm -hmm. on, you said domestic violence, for instance, in this yep. in this curriculum. So domestic violence is not something that we really talk about in grad school. Um, exactly. Because if you're, you're going the route of clinical counseling, you're focusing more on technique. Um, so mm, it is, okay. it's, a, it's a little bit different in that sense, but I'm so glad that you're able to bring that to uh, the, the place where you're working to help um, educate and inform form. And I'm kind of wondering, Rachel, what got you interested in, in eating disorders in the first place? What kind of grew, drew you to that topic? Right, right. Well, to be completely honest, they, there were never anything I had heard of before. Um, the first time I really was exposed to it, I was in junior high. Um, and we had this brilliant teammate, she's just phenomenal on my basketball mm. team. Um, and she developed anorexia nervosa. And that was the first time I had ever come across that term even. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's so, actually a pretty young yeah. age, by the way, to even hear yeah. that term, yeah. because I, I actually think a lot of people, you said junior high, so middle school, a lot mm-hmm. of people haven't heard that term by that age. So for all intents yeah. and purposes, you're actually kind of young to learn that term. Yeah, yeah. And part of me feels that it's avoided because, you know, similar to when parents are avoidant to have discussions around suicide or depression, mm-hmm. they have this misconception that if I talk about it, then they're going to do it. Yes. Yeah. And sex. Yeah. That's another topic. I mean, let's get real. Yeah. Well, yep. so many parents are like, well, I don't want to talk to my kids about sex or contraceptives. They're gonna do then, it they, anyway. then they might have it. Then they well, might. Just somebody's going to talk to them about it. And like, personally, as a parent, yes, those conversations make me sick, like physically ill. However, <laughs> I would rather the information come from me and like open that line of communication with my kids. I mean, that's, Stop staying away from hard conversations. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's yeah. so true. So you learned that you learned that label, but how did you learn the label? Like, did the person on the team tell you about it or did it become like a, uh, no. an educational topic that the whole team had to learn about or something like that? We really got minimal to nothing in yeah. regard to like trying to educate us around it. It was just like, okay, this person just kind of vanished and went somewhere. Um, and it was all very confusing to all of us. And they were like, oh, you know, so-and-so needed to go get treatment. Um, but there really wasn't a lot about it. And she did actually, I went to this really tiny parochial school. So in the entire K through eight, there were 200 kids. So everybody knew everybody. Um, and so she did actually write a letter to the junior high for the teachers to share with us and kind of give us an understanding of, you know, what was going on. But even with that being said, it's not that they suddenly we're like, oh, okay, we need to talk about this because it's a problem. Yeah, and, of course you know, not. We're having experience with this. Um, I mean, honestly, I didn't really have a health class at all. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I wish I could say I'm surprised by that, frankly. I mean, same. I wish I was surprised. And, and I say this, like here we're in our thirties saying this, yeah. but I, I still feel like it wouldn't really surprise me in 2022 to learn that certain things are off, off the table, um, depending on what part of the country you're in and how that curriculum yeah. s- sways in lines with certain views for whatever the district is and for which I won't I won't get into that. I was gonna say that was a very politically polite way to say that, Lindsay. <laughs> Why thank you. I have a lot of experience in politics. <laughs> oh um, my goodness. AKA politics matter and they influence, you know, our dollars, mm, how they're spent and how funding is allocated, which actually is another topic that I think Rachel can probably comment on. <laughs> Uh, I'll try to control myself in this conversation. It's okay. Oh, we, like we don't holes. want that. Yeah, no, we, we don't like want you to get... <laughs> It's okay. We're not so... seeking self-control in this podcast. Okay, good. So it's a whole lot of bullshit. Yes, a whole bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Glad so, we got that. Got that I off mean, the table. I admittedly am not as informed about the ins and outs of the insurance systems and the healthcare system as a whole, but I see the impact that it has on my clients and an individual's ability to even access treatment. Um, mm-hmm. So mental health in general gets very minimal amounts of funding, but eating disorders in particular are like bottom of the totem pole for even so much as being talked about, being funded for research. There's just so little out there. Um, and so in addition to that research and allocating resources for prevention and treatment, 
the ability for people to even seek treatment. Now, the fact that they even recognize that they have an eating disorder and are in a place where they want to receive treatment is huge. So for them to go to access treatment and it's either astronomically expensive because their insurance doesn't cover X, Y, or Z, or some insurance companies don't even cover all levels of care. Um, Some insurance companies only pay for inpatient. And I'm like, because that makes sense. Let's not give them the treatment they need earlier. Let's wait for them to get so sick that they need an inpatient admission because that's going to be cheaper for you to pay for than an intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization program. As I'm hearing you talk about this, um, for those of you who are not listening to us on YouTube, Amber just had such a visceral reaction just now. And I just needed to like take pause and, and ask what just happened there. So... There's a common theme that I'm seeing, like, probably in the last two years of my life, that as a society, we focus on um, fixing problems rather than preventing problems, um, which is incredibly frustrating to me from a health perspective, from like, and that's physical, mental, like, all of the things we would rather, like, throw um, duct tape on it you know, 10 years down the road instead of actually try to resolve the issue before it becomes problematic. So you saying that, like, it was just another little block on my Jenga stack that I'm like, seriously? (laughs) Like, yeah. 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 Because I mean, this is dangerous. Like, oh yeah. This is not like eating disorders. This is not something to play with. This is not something to like cast aside. It's not something to take lightly. This is something that impacts a a huge part of our society, men, women, all of it. Like it doesn't leave people out. There's no one who's Mm -hmm. exempt from experiencing this. Um, So it just, it just bothers me um, what you just said. So (laughs) that was what you saw. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a very visceral, visceral gut response. I could see uh, across just your body language. And even when they get into treatment and they have that resource insurance, a lot of insurance companies require, like, you know, they'll give you certain amounts of time. You have to call them and continue to argue for why this person needs ongoing treatment. Right. And so we, often, we have to do this yeah. all the time as clinicians. Exactly. This, this is a part exactly. of our job, just so y'all know as listeners, this is our time that we don't get paid for this time. We spend hours on in advocating and fighting with insurance companies left and right, unpaid, trying to convince people why they need to provide care or coverage for care for our clients. I mean, this is a huge part of the behind the scenes aspect of the job that a lot of people do not hear about or know about. Yeah. I had no idea that that was part of your role um, until, you know, you and I started talking about some of that stuff and just what goes into it because that's intense. And I know like having um, a child who's gone through like some pretty intense medical procedures, I've spent a fair number of hours arguing with insurance companies and doctors and like to have to do that all of the time. Good grief. Like, I appreciate y'all. I appreciate what you do because, and y'all like as a collective medical, like mental health society, like, thank you. Because that's, it's very frustrating to have those conversations. Oh, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. I'm sorry to have interrupted you, Rachel, on that, but it, I think that you are bringing, bringing to light a really important topic that is relevant across all realms of mental health and the helping professions as a whole. Absolutely. It's just so heartbreaking when I have a client who needs treatment, who wants treatment, who is actively trying. And I have to say, 
sorry, your insurance company has denied ongoing treatment at this level of care. And it's just so defeating for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then when, when you take that to the next level and we're looking at the ripple effect, because this is a big part of when we think about the systemic change that we want to see unfold in our healthcare system or in various systems as a whole, um, when we think about systemic change, this is where I feel like it's so important for the decision makers, the lawmakers to really take into account the ripple effect. Because when you're telling that adolescent that they cannot receive treatment, yet they have been brave and bold enough to share that they have this problem um, of whatever kind of caliber, intensity, frequency, duration of an eating disorder, and then you are sending them home, and maybe their parent cannot afford to pay out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't have health insurance either, or whatever the circumstances. Um, You know, in the state of Massachusetts, I honestly feel that the residents of Massachusetts are are quite blessed and very lucky to have an amazing health care system for those that cannot afford out of pocket. Uh, In in the sense, if we're comparing to many other states in the United States. So um, just insert that caveat. I think everything could always have a little room for improvement here. But um, just think about the psychological toll, though, that takes on the family and for the caregivers who can't provide help in the way that they want or the way that their child needs and the ripple effect that has, especially when we think about the co-occurring nature of um, eating disorders with depression or having Mm -hmm. anxiety and how even that linkage there with their caregiver who will also likely have experienced or is actively experiencing their own mental health conditions. For sure, for sure. That's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah, sorry. The notion Rachel, that they're not sick enough. Mm-hmm. So when insurance companies come back and they're like, mm, I don't think they need this level of care, the very fact that they were seeking care, such a barrier, especially with eating disorders to um, help seeking behaviors, is this belief that they're not, quote, sick enough. Like they're mm, not sick like, enough. Is that what you said? I'm not sick enough. Yes, I don't need this treatment. Well, and so then for enough? insurance companies, yeah, what's enough yeah, exactly. for the insurance company? That's my question. What's exactly. enough? Cardiac exactly. arrest? So for them, yeah. For them to do, come back and just confirm essentially exactly what was preventing them from treatment in the first place is just. Mm. <sighs> so what does, what, what seems to be the, like kind of the medical necessity, uh, and, and I don't mean like you have to get into like the nitty gritty aspect of this, but if we think of like medical necessity criteria, generally speaking, in terms of what would make coverage valid um, for just whatever kind of insurance company. I get it. They're all different. You're not speaking on behalf of any insurance company or whatever, but just from what you've seen, what are they looking for exactly to validate enough? Right. So um, amount of food intake. So if they are, if their behaviors are restriction, so how much are they eating? Um, If they have other behaviors like binging or purging, how frequently is that happening? What's the intensity of those behaviors? What does the biometric data look like? Are they losing weight? Are their vital signs stable? Mm. Are their labs out of range? Mm. Um, What physical symptoms do they have? Are they cold all the time? Are they dizzy? Are they passing out? Um, So also that intrusive thought piece, right? Are their thoughts consumed by this eating disorder about food, about weight, about shape, about what am I going to have later? How am I going to get out of this social engagement that's linked to food? Um, So they want to look at the thought piece, the physical piece, as well as like 
the emotions, the depression, anxiety, are they having any suicidal ideation? Um, you know, what is the impact that it's having on their other psychosocial domains, which is always very significant as well. I mm-hmm. think that gets overlooked because it's so much bigger than are they eating or are they not eating? Yeah, R- right. And that's honestly, as I'm, as I was listening to you say this and, and obviously I have a little bit of behind the scenes information just on the, on the professional level here. But just as I was hearing you say this, I'm thinking, isn't this interesting to hear? Because you you work with this population all day, every day, whereas I do not. Um, because just of note, clinicians who are not specialized in eating disorders really, really shouldn't be yeah. treating patients or clients with eating disorders. It is a very dangerous thing for someone to take on that kind of responsibility if you are not specialized in that um treatment modality that's needed for that client because this is you're playing with fire i mean you're playing Mm. with fire especially when you're talking about someone who's not eating or um has a lot of you know maybe their labs are totally off and things are not okay you need to have some kind of medical um oversight going on so that's when it's an intervention team right like you're talking about medical labs you're talking about so i mean you're involving now a dietitian you're involving like it goes beyond one person helping um, absolutely which from my perspective, like we get it right. Because we know people we've, we've probably more or less experienced someone we know or love who has dealt with this. Like it takes more than one person to help someone overcome that hurdle and to work through it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that an insurance company wouldn't, um, be on board to help in that prevention, um, just it's baffling. It is. And and so what I was thinking of, um, Rachel, when you were talking about elements of the medical necessity piece Mm. um, is, is while you didn't say it, I felt like in between the lines I was reading, you say, um, they're also looking for like this piece of weight loss, kind of this hyperfixation Mm. of weight loss. And so when I'm, when I'm hearing what I'm hearing you say, and then what I'm reading in between the lines which is where I get really annoyed because I have dealt with this end as a clinician. What happens to lovely individuals who are severely suffering with binge eating disorder? What Mm. happens for the individuals whose focus is not on an extreme um, uh, focus on like the weight loss piece or restriction piece? And it is a, a different type of eating disorder. And so that's, mm. this is kind of where I really want to hear you share a bit more in educating our audience on the fact that there are more than just two types of eating disorders. And there are more than just three types of eating disorders. Can you tell us about the different types of eating disorders that exist and and help us understand why it's important for us to know that these things exist, especially insurance companies. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I think the media and everything that we see portrays one of two disorders, anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. Mm. And there's this enormous misconception that it's a quote, teen girl disease. Hey, teen that's girl your demographic. Yeah, right. It's young women, you know, they're trying to manipulate their appearance in a certain way. Men are not affected. Children are not affected. Older individuals are not affected. Like, and that very narrow mindset is another barrier to folks receiving treatment because they feel very isolated mm-hmm. or they're like, okay, well then this has to just be me because this isn't talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so other disorders. So 
I would not be surprised if a lot of your listeners have never even heard of binge eating disorder. Um, it is brand new to the DSM-5. I understand there is an update now. So Lindsay, yes. thank you for <laughs> yeah. Know about that. yeah, by the um, way, that's new. Um, yeah, so the DSM, which is like our uh, diag, it's like our diagnostic Bible, so to speak, for mental health conditions. But that the DSM five, the most recent, well, minus 2022, the most recent version version was 2013. So they just came out with a revised version this year, 2022. So there's some new information hot off the press in terms of what we are allowed to issue as diagnoses to clients. Um, and so there have been some elements of the DSM that were updated with as it pertains to eating disorders, which is mm. Like, thank goodness, finally, because maybe this can actually help move the mark a bit with the insurance companies to reconsider what medical necessity looks like, frankly. Um, sorry, I'll go on a whole rant about that. <laughs> I feel that. I really do. <laughs> yeah, sorry. so it's like, wonderful, we're making progress, but also look how many decades it took to recognize this. Yeah, And so because it's still so new... Yeah. A lot of people are still learning about it, including those who deem medical necessity, right? And therapist. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> and therapists. Many therapists don't even know that there's a yeah. revised version of the DSM out. I mean, because it just came out. It's not like we got a whole alert from it. You know, it's not like they sent out this like. Yeah, I didn't get a text alert. message saying, hey, Rach, here's the new <laughs> revision. I was going to say, is there like an email list you could get on? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, but I'm sure it comes at the price of like $500 a year or something. Yeah, probably. Our industry, but um, yeah, not so much. But um, I just, there was, I, I know, I do want us to talk about the different types of disorders, uh, but whenever you, I just want to skip back just a second ago when you mentioned it's a teen girl's disease, mm -hmm. um, because I think also back when, uh, when we were in grad school, I remember I did some work. Oh, it was you guys, it was with Dr. V. It was with Dr. Oh, v. no way. Our yes, friend Dr. Dr. V. <laughs> Dr. Villegas, one of our guest speakers. Uh, yeah, so we were, we had been doing some work um, for a school and we were looking at the mental health conditions uh, among student athletes. And it was, and it was fascinating mm. because a, a big part of what we saw with even, you know, male athletes, because we don't really talk about males and eating disorders, but if you think about wrestling teams, for instance, um, mm -hmm. that you will see eating disorders left and right in these kind mm -hmm. of sports. And, um, unfortunately you just don't hear people talking about that. And it becomes one of those hush, hush, quiet social norms. And then these men go on to develop actually some pretty severe, um, physical ailments as a result of the eating disorder. Absolutely. It's so normalized in our society, this diet culture mentality. It's just so built into the air that we breathe that nobody mm -hmm. really blinks at it when they see it. And so yeah. because nobody sees it when it's starting, because it's seen as so normal, it has to escalate to a really severe degree before anyone acknowledges that it's a problem. Yeah. Before it's enough. Before it's absurd. Enough. Just, I'm, I'm going to try to stop rolling my eyes so loudly, but yes, if this is absurd. <laughs> Like just <laughs> right. So okay. Um, so <laughs> moving on. on. <laughs> yes, that's okay. That's all right. I mean, this is a it's a topic that frankly this should this should make you mad. This should upset you, and hopefully people will get mad enough to do something about it. 
And whenever I say do something, I get it. Some people are like, well, I'm one person, Lindsay, what the hell do you want me to do? <laughs> start talking to your kids, start normalizing these conversations, start yes. diet culture, the unusual thing, not the usual thing. Like, right. Just cause you get blasted with diets and choose low fat, this, that, and the other um, on, on, you know, social media and the news all day, every day is it doesn't mean that it's legitimate, uh, health information that you should be taking <laughs> into account. Yeah. Um, no. And, and like, we... there's a caveat, right? Obviously I'm a health and wellness coach. I definitely prioritize eating healthy, but eating healthy is not restriction. It's not, oh my gosh, all this food is bad. You can never have this food again because it's bad. Food is neither bad nor good. Like we, in our house, I was trying to think of like how I talk to my kids because this stuff starts in adolescence. Like our relationship with food starts very, very early in life. And I talk to my kids about what different foods do in our bodies. You know, carrots help your eyes to be stronger. Oatmeal gives you good energy so that you can go play outside. Like we talk about foods, you know, chocolate is good for your heart. Dark chocolate that is. Um, <laughs> all chocolate, Amber. <laughs> all chocolate is good for your brain. Um, no, but it, these are conversations that start in the home and that whether you have children or not, odds are at some point in every day you interact with another human. So maybe start by not picking apart the way you look or the way, you know, what your reflection in the mirror is. There's something that each of us can do men, women, all of it of to help to start to break this social norm down and get rid of it for good. Right. And, and even on that note, instead of greeting somebody and commenting on their appearance, mm -hmm. why not greet somebody and, you know, offer praise on their, I don't know, intelligence or how yeah, they've be been uh, doing in life? Like, why does it have to be about, oh, you look great. Did you lose weight? And that's oh. such a compliment that we view if somebody right. asks us if we've lost weight, as if that's all we are meant to do in this world. Mm -hmm. Well, in America it is, didn't you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now I'll bring us back to our question from before. Rabbit hole number four. Sorry um, guys. I just, this is how I operate. You just, you just roll with it. Um, you're fine. We love you. <laughs> don't apologize. These are so, these oh, conversations well, are so important and not had enough. They are, they really are. Um, but I want to, I want to bring us back to the different types of eating disorders, because mm -hmm. I, I do think it is important for us to increase some awareness about their existence. So, you know, you mentioned that we've, we've got, and I say, we, we, we <laughs> there is the existence of, uh, anorexia, which is when people are choosing not to eat or restricting food, um, and, and really obsessively counting the calories and so forth. You've got bulimia, which is generally associated with the binging and purging of food. What else is there, Rachel? Great. So I had started talking about binge eating disorder. So that is binge episodes without the presence of compensatory behaviors. And unfortunately, like the definition that we have for what classifies the binge, you know, in our diagnostic manual is very vague. So again, it can be very hard for people to identify that they have this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's such an important topic with binge eating disorder, I feel it's one of the most stigmatized disorders. And what is interesting yes. is the amount of people with this disorder outnumber anorexia and bulimia combined. Oh, wow. And they have about equal rates of men and women who are afflicted. Whereas with anorexia and bulimia, you know, it's like women like 10 to one, something like that. 
Wow. Um, so, so many individuals are afflicted and no one's talking about it. And there's a lot of guilt, a lot of shame associated with this. I mean, sure. with all I'm... eating disorders in general, but with mm-hmm. binging in particular, there's a lot of Absolutely. Because I think too, when, when we, when we look at American culture and at least other countries looking in, uh, so much of what people talk about is, oh, Americans are so obese. Mm. And we talk about that as if that is, that is how culturally this is normal. This is how we are as Mm. a whole. And so why should an insurance company bat their eyelashes and give a shit when someone is, uh, for all intents and purposes, appearing to be like, oh, you're average American. You're just obese. Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. need to stop eating so much. Yeah. And that oversimplifies it. The amount of difficulty that I face with primary care physicians who blame any and all ailments on weight. Yep. Mm. Even when Huge it has problem. minimal to nothing to do with it. Say it louder, you know, girl. Say it louder. For, yeah. I went in for strep once and my doctor's talking to me about my weight. I'm like, I literally just need you to give me some antibiotics for strep throat. I don't need to talk about my weight right now. Yes. Yeah. Like this well, is actually, not part of the you discussion. You and me both. You and me both. I've had, I've absolutely had a doctor hyper-focus on um, weight with me whenever I actually developed acid reflux. And mm. that was actually shortly after I had Lyme disease. Well, I was, I was hell-bent and determined. If you know, if people are familiar with Lyme disease and even the treatment of Lyme disease um, and doxycycline, which is the medication, the issue and how it affects your body, developing GERD is not atypical after getting prescribed a ton of doxy. Um, And I was on that stuff for like a month. It was horrible. So... (laughs) Which is, yeah, I was over-prescribed it. But anyway, I digress. The, the, whole, <laughs> the whole point is, is that, you know, the fact that the conversation of weight is what came up of, oh, Lindsay, you've put on about 15 pounds this year. You know, hmm, maybe that has something to do with it. It's like, why are we looking at that as the go-to? I understand that there has to be some rule outs. Like we as clinicians do that for certain things. Right. But I, I agree that there seems, there seems to be a general focus on, um, well, let's look at what you can control. Maybe you just need to lose some weight and then we'll reassess. Mm-hmm. That's Absolutely. a shame. It's, yeah. it happens all too often, but perhaps we can help um, enlighten folks that there's more to life than that number on the scale. And there's other things at play. Um, we put right. far too much emphasis on that. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> can you, can you tell us what, um, some of these other eating disorders are that you had, um, yep. well, that you work with on a daily basis and what you've seen? Yeah. So I think one that I think it's more rare to know of than not, um, it's called ARFID, which stands for avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So this is when there is a restriction of your energy intake, but it's not related to weight, shape, body image at all. So this could be an aversion to certain textures. It could be Mm. a fear of getting sick, a fear of choking. So they limit certain foods. And what usually happens is, you know, say, say they had an experience where, okay, I choked on a green bean, right? So it would start, I'm avoiding green beans, but then it starts to generalize to foods that are similar to and before you know it, you know, they're eating three things, chicken nuggets, mashed potatoes, and, you know, maybe applesauce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that gets often underlooked. You see this a lot in younger children. So mm-hmm. people think eating and, disorders, you know, yeah. And they're children not with autism. Kids. 
think about yes, children autism. with autism, right? Because we really want to think about the sensory piece. Yeah. And the fact this is something that is so overlooked in the sense that there's a there's a big connection there to take into consideration there because sensory wise maybe certain foods and the textures don't feel good and i don't like them and i don't want to eat them um but then we're kind of maybe not acknowledging that this is entered eating disorder territory yes yes because i think people get hung up on well yeah they're eating okay but do they have a variety you know are they eating mac and cheese for every meal of every day for, you know, right, and are they getting the nutrients it. they need to yeah. fuel their body? Um, because food is fuel. Exactly, is... food is your medicine. That's what we tell all of our clients. Food is medicine. That's right. Um, and then I'm I'm thinking of another um, eating disorder. Um, I'm going to screw up the name of it. I always forget it because it, we don't talk about it. It doesn't come up much, and I think it's new to the DSM too. Are are orthorexia. Orthorexia, oh. is that what it is? Orthorexia. About the hyperfixation yeah. on like the healthy foods? Yes. All right. Well then can you yeah. tell us more about that one too, please? I can. I can. So I am very delighted that this has been added to the revision because the, the board's been back and forth on this for a while. Um and so a lot of disordered eating starts with good intent, right? Mm. Like I want to be quote unquote healthy, right? I want to be at a healthy weight. I'm gonna cut out quote unquote bad food. And, you know, by the way, our philosophy here at our treatment facility is all food is good food, all food is fuel. The components break down and provide your body with energy in the same way. Um, so orthorexia is very much the same, right? It's like, I want to do some clean eating. So they might start cutting out processed foods, for example, or eat like, you know, we think, you know, your most extreme, you know, for example, raw vegan diets. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that people make food choices such as that, but with mm. orthorexia, it's an extreme. It's There's no flexibility with anything outside of this. They become very rigid with their exercise and fitness routines. And it really starts to limit them, both in their physical abilities, but also in their social life, in their relationships, in their work. Um, so I think this flies under the radar because it's like, well, great. They're eating healthy. They're exercising. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, and I think a lot of people just equate those two things with the core definition of health, which sure. isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. Right, right. I can absolutely see that. I mean, if we think about, um, I'm just honestly, the first state that comes to mind is California. I mean, how can it not? I mean, I'm just speaking facts. It's not here. a wrong you, one, but you want, yeah. you want your wheatgrass shots and you want to have, uh, you know, yeah. your smoothies and everything has to be organic and it's got to be vegan and you want to do this and that. And I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on that lifestyle. No, definitely not. Um, yeah. I say, if you can afford that lifestyle, more power yeah. to you, but it's an extremely expensive lifestyle to live. Um, but I agree, Rachel, is that when it becomes a fixation and that is all in it, and it, there's like almost like a level of hypervigilance associated with it as yeah. well, um, where that's all you're thinking about and that's all you're willing to have. Or I kind of also am thinking like, does it also develop or manifest in like even a fear of contamination if it's not the right kind of food? Mm. It can, it can. Um, so different phobias, fear of contamination, OCD in general, we yeah. see with a lot of our clients and a lot of times it starts with OCD and then OCD can work and attach itself to food. So you see this um, escalation in 
um, you know, similar to with our grid, right? Things start to generalize and take on a life of their own. So it's not that if you like to eat certain foods and exercise that you have an eating disorder, but it's how rigid are you in these views, right? If somebody offers you a cupcake at a birthday party and you have this really strong reaction, absolutely not, like I'm not putting that in my body, right? We think about how that impacts you on an emotional level, how it impacts you on that social level, right? There's definite um, maladaptive consequences. Well, it's that stress response, right? Like yeah. it's not, if you offer me a cupcake and I decline, that doesn't stress me out. Like that cupcake yeah. does not entice me because I don't like cake. I'm not like, I'm just- <laughs> I do. I'm not a cake fan. Like, <laughs> so I would probably decline for a variety of reasons, but like, if you offered me ice cream, then we can talk. Um, yeah. but neither of those, um, interactions cause me stress to either decline or accept because I don't, I have developed, I have curated a healthier relationship with food than I've ever had in my entire life. But that does not mean that I'm not vigilant about what I put in my body because I do like, I make certain choices for me because I know how my body reacts to certain foods and I know how I'm going to feel after I eat it. And I know, like, I know innately I am better off without that cupcake because I'm not even going to enjoy it. But I, that's mm -hmm. like, that is a different situation than I think what you're, you're conveying about orthorexia. Yes. So many of the diagnoses in the DSM, one of the diagnostic criterion has to be causes quote clinically significant distress in life. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course that's, that can, um, perception is reality, I suppose. Yeah. It depends on who Absolutely. you're asking. It's quite, it's so subjective, but unless there's labs so to back it up, right. I mean, unless there's hard proof to back it up. Um, you know, as I was, as, as, as we've been talking about this and actually earlier this week, um, the clinic where I work just had ironically, timing wise, they just had a um, little presentation on diet culture and different eating mm. disorders and stuff to bring everyone up to speed with um, the DSM changes and stuff like that. So um, one thing that I was thinking of even during that presentation, and, and even as we're speaking today, I'd be so curious to know, Rachel, if you've seen anyone who kind of fits the, the bill here with this, but I'm, you know, I'm thinking with this pandemic, with COVID, there have been in the last two years, many, many people who have lost their sense of taste and smell mm -hmm. to, to COVID. And to mm -hmm. clarify, yes, maybe, maybe someone here listening, you've had COVID, you lost your sense of taste and smell for a few days or a couple of weeks. But I think it's important to note that some people have lost their sense of taste and smell for months for three, yeah. six, nine, 12 plus months. And there are people that have now gone more than a year, year and a half without a sense of taste or smell. And yeah. um, by the way, if you're one of those people, there are some phenomenal support groups on Facebook that are free and readily accessible for people to join. I highly recommend Googling it, looking it up. Um, but uh, anyway, my point is, is that these people, whenever they are eating, they experience a horrid taste in mm. their mouth. Maybe it tastes or smells like chlorine or mm. like sewage or something horrible, horrible, like just awful, awful, awful is how ammonia there's been like different people to uh, different reports around like a chemical type smell or something like that. Um, I'm wondering if you guys in the last two years have seen any shift or novel onset of eating disorders as it pertains to the desire of, of wanting to restrict foods or choosing not to eat at all 
as a result of the onset of the loss of taste and smell with COVID? I think that is such a fascinating topic. And now I am very much wanting to go find more research on it. So I'm very curious <laughs> in general. How Thank you. I'm very curious one, too. Yeah. I was Inquiring like, oh, minds want to know. What a, yeah. What a great topic. <laughs> well, thank I you. You, it's not, it's not really a, something that I thought much about. Yeah. So a lot of people haven't. And I've been thinking about this now for a long ass time, actually, long before this past week. I've been thinking about this for a while because I joined one of those support groups to better understand what a person was going through mm -hmm. in the event that I ended up with a client that was navigating that. Because yeah. of course I'd hear people that were saying, yes, they were losing their sense of taste and smell for a couple of weeks or, you know, a week. Um, but I thought, oh my gosh, how could I, as a clinician, how am I sp to support someone navigating this if they're now no longer eating? So through this, I've learned there's, there's so many people who have given up food and are losing a lot of weight and they're mm -hmm. not they're, they don't have the nutrients they need because it's just it is so hard for them to eat so I'm, I'm i'm very interested and deeply curious about this topic and have been yeah. wanting to dig into it to a bit so i'm sorry yeah. to give you a heads up that i was going to ask about it <laughs> oh no that's no problem at all now i'm like ooh, i gotta talk to my boss who's super into research and stuff he would honestly be a riot on this podcast um and <laughs> I'm really surprised that that hasn't come up so much in the work that I do. I can think of a few instances with individuals who had COVID and they lost their sense of taste and they basically just used that to take advantage and eat, you know, quote unquote, super healthy greens that don't necessarily taste that great um, oh, okay. as an attempt. Okay. To kale, it's kale, isn't it? Probably. <laughs> 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 um, so I have had that experience, but um, you bring up such an interesting point there, and I really do want to ask around and see what else I can dig up there. Please when do, I, and come back and tell us all about it. Yes. <laughs> and I, I also think, um, Lindsay, you bring up another good point, right? So we're learning that there's um, more than just one or two forms of eating disorders. I think something on my mind is how do we better support the people around us to help make this um less stigmatized, right? So like, how do I show up for friends, family, loved ones in a way that is nurturing and kind and compassionate and empathetic mm -hmm. while also like providing a safe space for them to seek help or to, you know, make, um, adjustments to their lifestyle that are healthier and better for their mental and emotional well-being. Oh, right. That was a big right. question. I want to, I want to answer I'm some like, of it too. <laughs> yes. That's a good question for both of you. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I instantly, um, I'm sorry. If we can share, that would be great. <laughs> I would love to answer some of this. Um, Amber's laughing at me. Um, yeah, because I was just thinking like, you know, the one thing that I wish family members would seriously cut the shit on whenever it comes to family holidays. Um, e even whenever I, I'm thinking, let's see summertime right here it is it's summertime we're thinking of hots like the nice sunshine cookouts eating lots of food and all the all the things and having a good time but can the family members just cut the shit with making the small nitpicky remarks the judgmental passive ass statements about oh you're having a second plate 
Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. You must be really hungry today. Look at how much you just ate. God, you ate all that. So I would just like to do a call to action to please shut the fuck up. I mean, nobody yes. needs to hear that. Look, and the other <laughs> side of that, the other side of that, like coming from personal <gasps> experience here, let's just not comment on what people are eating in general in those yes. circumstances, because yes. like I have been on the other end of that. That's like, oh, you're choosing a salad. Why don't you eat this burger? Mm-hmm. Like, why don't you eat this instead? Oh, you must be too good to eat this other food. I'm like, no, like it has nothing to do. I'm eating the food that I enjoy. I'm eating the food that I want. Like, let's just stop commenting on our family members' food choices, perhaps, I think. Or Um, friends, whatever. I mean, yes, friends. I'm getting a little feisty over here on this. You are so feisty. Say it again for the people in the back. (laughs) Listen, I really really am. About food and For real. I've had had people comment on, on like how much I eat as this has been a this has been a huge part of my norm by the way i've never had a reason to bring it up because frankly it's never really come up in conversation i guess it's just been one of my normal things right one of my toxic norms but um you know i grew up with my mom being a chef so i was around Mm. food my whole life (laughs) and um you know eating was was eating a lot of food too was like really normal um and you know, fortunately, I, I will say I've been blessed with some high metabolism <laughs> and, but people would constantly, um, question or be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much food you're eating or wow. You know, you're going to gain a lot of weight. Like, you know, just comments like Mind that. Your own business. They're so unnecessary. Yeah. But <laughs> on top of that, I think about, um, I had a client one time with, with, um, binge eating disorder and, um, that's not why they were seeing me for treatment. Um, but that's okay. And, you know, one thing we would definitely do some safety planning around holidays, Thanksgiving, Mm. Christmas, um, birthdays, but especially Thanksgiving is a very triggering holiday for so, so many people, because at least in the United States, that holiday is so centered around food consumption as a way to bring people together. Um, and I think it's important to remember not to put pressure on, on people or expectations of what they should or should not be eating, mm-hmm. how much they should or should not be eating. Um, and then thinking of, of healthy coping skills to help them navigate that. I, I typically encourage people like always keep a, a book or a fidget or AirPods mm-hmm. nearby so that you can listen to a song, even if it's in the bathroom, listen to a song for two minutes to help mm-hmm. kind of as like a, uh, as a distress tolerance skill, essentially, um, just to kind of keep yourself grounded in these moments where you really don't want to be around these people who are frankly quite triggering for your food disorder, whether it be disordered eating or eating disorder. Those are good tips, Lindsay. And it's, um, even if it's not in dealing with a disordered eating or eating disorder, like sometimes family stuff is just triggering to anxiety and to, um, nervousness and to all different areas. So I think those are useful tips for all of it. And I mean, personally, like when I find myself in those situations, I sometimes excuse myself for a walk, like just take take myself out, get a little bit of fresh air and remove myself because while we do as a society, make most of our holidays about food, like that's not, that doesn't have to be the stressor. It doesn't have to be like the thing that we focus in on, even though that is the Mm -hmm. norm. It is. Exactly. So now, Rachel, I'm sorry that I had to jump in on your question, but it was- She dove right in, man. She went right for the kill. I did. I got feisty on that one, y'all. Sorry. No, I love it. I love it. And I think you had such excellent things to share with that. Um, 
so well, it yeah, is now, what was the question? I'm trying to see <laughs> how to focus, <laughs> trying to figure out how to focus my answer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think American culture, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, especially, but pretty much any social gathering is just yeah. around food. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this expectation in that regard. Um, and so if you're trying to support someone, you know, the anxiety and the depression and the family stressors and the eating disorders, you know, forgive me, but they feed into each other. Um, and so individuals who have to go to something around food and if they're struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder, that's going to be anxiety provoking in and of itself, let alone having family, friends, random acquaintances commenting on what they're eating. So, I mean, the best advice I can give to loved ones of people struggling is do not ask them about their food plate, do not, unless they specifically ask you to ask those questions. Right. right. Do a general check-in. Like, how are you feeling right now? Um, what do you need from me right now? What would be helpful? How can I support you? As opposed to asking very specific food questions that usually yeah. just shut people down. Yeah. Um, and having those distress tolerance skills, having an exit strategy, having like a hand signal or something to an ally of yours there. I always say, have a buddy, you know, mm -hmm. buddy yes. have somebody there. If you're that feeling too uncomfortable to redirect the tip. conversation, have somebody else there who can, yeah. right? Have somebody else who can redirect or be like, dude, you're being a moron right now. Like stop talking. You don't know what you're saying. Right. Someone that um, can pick up on the body cues yeah. and sense that exactly. that person's feeling uncomfortable. Have an ally. I love that suggestion. And it's a wonderful one. Um, because truly, I think we could all, we could all use an ally in, in those kind of events because holidays and things like that can be stressful in of itself. So absolutely. Um, and I would say like, from my perspective, like I would be, I don't know if honored is the right word, but like, if someone asked me to be their ally in that situation or asked me to be their buddy in that situation, like hundred percent, I'm in it to help you. Like you need an exit strategy. You need someone to change the course of the conversation. You need someone to step in and tell someone to back the hell off. Like, cool, cool. I'm your girl. Let me know. But like you, we're going to have to speak up and we're going to have to get comfortable saying like, I need help yeah. or I need, I need you to be here for me. And as a collective society, we need to be ready to step in and say, yep, I got your back. Yeah. instead of making people feel less than because they're asking for help and they're being honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so, and it's so pain. It's so painful. I just felt that so hardcore in my soul there because I just, I feel that um, when you see someone who's genuinely struggling with this um, and, and Rachel, the fact that you, this is your specialized population, like mad respect to you seriously, because for sure it's, it is a hard and I, I mean, I, I get it. We all have our own, our own little niche or whatever, but, um, it's a very tough population to work with and it is so heartbreaking. Um, and, and something that I just want to actually draw a connection to for our listeners as I'm saying this, because I, I feel similarly when I work with, uh, clients that suffer with substance use disorders, mm. um, is that in terms of eating disorders, it is very similar to how substance use disorders operate. And I think that that's yes. something that as a collective, we need to keep in mind that this is also a form of an addiction. Mm -hmm. And it is. yes, I mean, addiction takes, uh, it, it looks different for different people in different ways. Um, and it can be to a, a substance such as food or alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex or whatever. Um, but in terms of the clinical approach, we're still treating it 
from an addiction standpoint. Yeah. And I would love to comment on that if I could. Um, Please do. I, I know I had mentioned at the start, you know, we learned about eating disorders and substance use disorders together. And yes, it kind of seems like we're brushing off both and not diving deep in, but there's a reason that we learn about those together. And not only just in their treatment modalities, but both are highly genetic disorders. Mm -hmm. And the same, the dopaminergic system in your brain is what gets activated with substance use. And it's the same exact spot that gets lit up for eating disorders. Tell us and what part of the brain, tell us what that part of the brain does, please, for those so that are not So that is familiar. your, right. So your dopamine system, right? Those are your feel good and feel good chemicals. Right. So mm. it's very much this like pleasure, instant gratification. You see it a lot with, you know, impulsivity as well. Our pleasure um, principle. So it's that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. So, oh man, I took like a neuropsych course and my professor would be sad that I don't remember more about that right now. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, but you know, just so just the basics of, uh, uh, you know, making sure that our audience understands yeah. what you're yeah. tying together here is saying Absolutely. both substance use disorders and eating disorders are both connected to that reward system or that pleasure yes. principle in our brain. We don't have to get into yeah. the really crazy specifics. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So and, uh, you know, uh, in recent times, substance use disorders, they've gotten more attention, which is phenomenal that they're starting mm -hmm. to be talked about more. They're starting to be more um, resources laid out for people. And so sometimes people can conceptualize substance use disorders better than eating disorders. So when I do family sessions, for example, you know, a lot of the time I hear, why can't they just eat? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, they need food. They need to eat. Why aren't they eating? Right. And so sometimes if I can explain it from more of a substance abuse lens, it clicks a little more that it is an addictive behavior, that they're not choosing to do this, that it's just this vicious cycle that perpetuates itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that can be a helpful tool as well for some family members. I think that's yeah. super helpful. And like what I'm hearing from both of you is just like be a listener, not a fixer. Right. Just be willing to be open and hear what someone is sharing with you without judgment and stop commenting on food choices because and body image and like all the things, because what matters about a person is their inner light, not what you can see on the surface. And um, while I will always advocate for taking care of the body you're in, that does not mean shrinking the body you're in. Right. Hundred percent. I mean, like that's not the bottom line. Yeah, yes, <laughs> like it can are. be a byproduct. Like yes, I've lost one hundred and one pounds. That is important to me because I'm giving myself a longer life. I'm giving myself energy to hang out with my kids. I'm giving myself the ability to have less painful days and to get up off the floor by myself. But mm -hmm. I, my validation as a human is not tied to that weight loss in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And I think that's like we need to do a better job as talking. And I know as women, like it's very normal for to sit down at a table and hear someone say, oh my gosh, my muffin top. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. this. Oh, like mm -hmm. stop, stop. Everybody yeah. has roles when they sit down. Like it is yeah. just your human body was meant to bend and roll and flex and do the things. So the your hyperfixation on that. Yeah, like- Thick thighs save, save lives. Isn't that what they say? I know it saved my <laughs> cell phone a couple of times. <laughs> I like that. 
<laughs> I like that thick thighs uh, save lives. <laughs> I like that a lot. I like that one a lot. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, welcome. I mean, I didn't come up I, with it. I think there's a big. I think there's a a, an, um, a takeaway though in understanding that that no, there is no one look associated mm. with an eating disorder. Um, True. And yeah. just in general, I'm wondering if, if Rachel, if you, there's anything else that you'd like to add on on that, or just even in the overarching theme of this topic as a whole. Yes, absolutely. So people get very caught up in, well, I don't look like I have an eating disorder, right? That is the craziest sentence ever. There is no one look to an eating disorder. Even if you have an identical diagnosis, you can have 10 people diagnosed with anorexia restriction type and they are gonna manifest in 10 different ways. Mm. You cannot just assume that folks have an eating disorder based off of what they look like. Um, so that I think is so important to know that you can't just look at someone and be like, oh, anorexia or oh, binge eating disorder. Um, and that's just so harmful in terms of the stigmatization and the you know, feeling that you're either not sick enough or you're not validated, right? a little bit frustrates me the diagnosis of atypical anorexia that doesn't mm. have as much of a focus on the amount of weight that needs to be lost because again I feel like it stigmatizes that person and that so you have an eating disorder in general that's going to isolate you but now you have what's an atypical eating disorder so let's isolate you further right so I think I mean yes weight is important it's important to track important to monitor but that is not even remotely close to the only thing that we hear about absolutely absolutely <laughs> Here, here for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that. hands yeah. down. I mean, it's just we are. There's more to us than than the our food gravitational that we put in pull. Our body, or yes, yeah, the gravitational. Pull. <laughs> I mean, our body looks. I mean, that's yeah. yes, uh, hands down. There's this quote that I love um, that we actually used to have above the scale at our treatment center, um, and it says, "All the scale measures is your numerical relationship with gravity." Mm -hmm. That's it. You're going to be different that. on the moon, on Mars or whatever. This number has nothing to do with anything except gravity and the earth pull. Yeah. Yes. And honestly, just as you were even mentioned that about the scale, just one last little tidbit of an area where I feel like we could use some improvement where maybe our primary care physicians could help out is maybe just automatically having people step on the scale where they're not necessarily facing the scale is another thing. Yes. Not everyone wants to see their weight. They don't always get the opportunity or are comfortable saying, hey, I need blind weights and this is why. Yep, and yeah. what kills me further is even when they say that, it ends up on their paperwork anyway. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There's a I lot will say you are 100% correct. And I, I have noticed my primary care physician is definitely like forward thinking in this because for the last three years, when we go in, it's, um, you know, do you want to know the number? And they have the information like facing away from the scale. So yep. it's not like, I don't have to make any decisions until they say, Hey, do you want this information or no? And yep. I think that's a huge part of taking the stress and anxiety away from this because I don't get to see the rest of the chart information. Like, why do I need to be bombarded with that? Um, like that right up front at the start of the appointment, it's incredible. And more doctor's offices should do that. Care. Yeah. That just made me think one more public service announcement. You can decline to be weighed. I think yes, we you can. That. We forget that when we're in this, you know, sort of quote unquote, like power differential, like I'm the patient, this is the doctor, and they're telling me what to do. You can decline. No questions asked. <laughs> I think so, we forget about that. 
Fun fact, when I was pregnant with my first child, I had a doctor tell me I was obese and that I was um, harming my child because of how heavy I was. And after that point, I refused to see that doctor anymore. Um, And I declined all future weigh-ins and just told them that like, I would provide them the information by email if they truly needed it. But like, that was not going to be a part of my report. Um, And then I went into labor and that doctor was on call and I may or may not have refused to go into the hospital until he was no longer on call. Good for you. (laughs) Like snap. Wow. And this is when... This is when Hazel came into the world, Lindsay. So I think I might've no. manifested some of her, um, fire her shenanigans. <laughs> That's why she's so damn fiery. That girl, I swear y'all, Amber's daughter is uh, going to change the world. She is a straight fireball, that one, but it makes sense. Her. You, uh, you freaking birthed her under fiery conditions, <laughs> under very fiery conditions. Like that was my bad, but, um, and I'm not advocating for anybody to like, keep themselves from the hospital while in active labor, like not a good idea, probably not one of my smarter choices, but real talk. It's what I did because that man was coming nowhere near me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so yes, let's hear it for trauma informed approaches guys. (laughs) For sure. No, this has been such an enlightening conversation, Rachel. I appreciate you sharing this with us. I definitely came away with new information and new tools in my toolbox to be able to help folks that I work with um, in my client space and also in my friends and family unit as well. So thank you. You're so welcome. And Lindsay, I can send you resources for treatment options. So, you know, you can link it to wherever you post this if people are interested. Um, There are plenty of resources available to you. Just make that first click, make that first call, schedule an evaluation. Even if you choose to do nothing with that information, at least you Mm -hmm. have it in the book. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm happy to we can we can uh, definitely include some some links in the show notes for today's episode, yeah. and then Great. you guys can just kind of scroll on through and pick what looks like is whatever's good for you or your family. Um, I'm so glad that you could join us today. Just to and I know that we're, honestly we only just scratched the surface today. We did. But I'm so <laughs> glad that we were able to at least talk about some of this stuff, get the conversation out there. I think this has been a wonderful topic for Mental Health Awareness Month, and um, truly thank you so much and please keep us posted on any research that your boss might come across we want to hear about it i got you i got you thank you so much for having me (laughs) thanks rachel all right bye guys see you next tuesday bye and we all sing everything is gonna be just fine it's gonna fall into place the sun is gonna set on your terrible day